Welcome, everyone, to the Our Strange Skies podcast. I am your host, Rob Christofferson, and I'm joined today by author, journalist, lecturer, uh, investigator, and, and the author of one of my, like, as of this week, one of my new favorite books on the paranormal, Dr. C.S. Matthews, uh, otherwise known as Professor Wham. Professor Wham, welcome to the podcast. Hey, how you doing? I'm great. How are you doing this evening? Well, I, I've worked out. I've gone been to the gym. I've eaten. I'm having my tea. I guess I'm pretty good. Excellent. Excellent. So uh, t- there were two things right away that I took away from your book. One, never go into the woods at night without a purpose. The second one, if I am in the woods, Bigfoot may be watching me while I'm going to the bathroom. And that will always be a fear that I have for the rest of my life now. <laughs> Well my, my, well, my physical trainer, whose story that is, will be amused to know that. <laughs> but, uh, you know, uh, in all seriousness, uh, your book, Mysterious Beauty, which uh, has just come out on Audible, uh, it, it's fantastic because, uh, you know, as someone who's grown up in the Adirondacks their entire life, generally what you get with books that cover their, you know, paranormal topics up here. They're usually slim volumes and they usually cover like one singular subject usually. Mm-hmm. And, and most of the time it's, it's about, you know, ghosts and hauntings and stuff like that. And, and what's great about your book is it, it shines a light on a certain, you know, a particular area, the Hudson Valley, but it also, you know, it, it covers a wide variety of topics and it, which I appreciate because um, again, you, you don't get a lot of the, with with the exception of maybe the Hudson Valley UFO stuff in the 80s, you don't get a lot of like that uh, UFO crossover or that cryptid kind of crossover. And, and your book kind of covers it all, which uh, I, I, I appreciate uh, greatly. Um, first and foremost, because because listening to other interviews that you've done, I know you're not from New York, but what drew you to the Hudson Valley and, and what made you want to write Mysterious Beauty? Well, that's, those are a couple of interesting questions. My, my attraction to the Hudson Valley actually started when I was very young, uh, when I was in the first grade uh, and this, this is dating me. Okay. When I, in the first, I was, it was in the mid sixties when I was in first grade, (laughs) but we still had that that uh that thing where you could buy scholastic books i think you probably still had that when you were you know i think they were still doing that and um and and i did get an allowance and so one of the first books that i purchased i still have it somewhere i just i think it's like in five pieces at this point but Mm -hmm. uh one of the books that i got was a book on um weird things and folklore and stories from the hudson valley and it you know it covered stuff like Rip Van Winkle and, you know, that kind of thing, you know, uh, but a lot of folklore, but it did have in it some ghost stories and it had some cultural things in it, like the whole process of sugaring, you know, making maple syrup. Um, and, 
and it just the just the descriptions of it seemed so they were magical to me. I mean, I I was raised first in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and then my family moved to Kansas. So it seemed like a very magical landscape to me, really. And I, and I resolved pretty young to to try to make it here at some point. Well, you know, a lot of life happened in between, and um, but as fate would have it or whatever, um, I made it here about, I guess it's been about, let's see, it's 12 years, 12, 13 years that I've lived here now. And um, by the time I did get here, uh, I had a PhD in American Cultural Studies. My dissertation is on alien abduction narratives in the United States. So I had already come with that interest intact. I, by that time, I obviously knew about the UFO stuff in the Hudson Valley and certainly about the the, the legend uh, legends of certain types of ghosts in certain places. But what brought me to actually read uh, or write the book uh, it, it was just a set of interesting circumstances. Um, I was I was here maybe about two years, and I was teaching at well, I was teach I was adjuncting at like three different colleges. You know how the adjuncting gig goes. <laughs> yep. You know you have to go to several different places to assemble enough money to sort of live like an adult. Right. And so I um I was doing that, and I had a late night class. Uh, that got out like nine or nine thirty, and then I had an early morning class in another place at eight o'clock. And so, rather than drive all the way back from Poughkeepsie to Saugerties, which for your viewers they may not know how far that is, but that's like almost an hour and a half drive. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, even when the traffic is good. So um, instead of doing that, um, I would stay at a friend's house, which was on the east side of the river where Poughkeepsie was. And so I was making my way down some narrow back roads to her house. She lived in a kind of rural area um, in uh, the, the township of Clinton, which is in Dutchess County. And I was, I turned, I, I was coming down a road and I, and it was very dark outside. It was kind of isolated. I was paying attention to deer because they have the tendency to pop out right oh, in yeah. front of you, you know, mm -hmm. um, and in fact, I don't know anybody here who hasn't hit a deer at least once. I've even <laughs> hit a deer once, barely, but I did hit it. Not, not in this particular instance, but I, I turned a curve. My, my headlights came around like this. And right in front of me, about 200 feet in front of me was a very, very large bipedal hairy something crossing the road. And it, it was kind of casually crossing the road. And I and my headlights startled it, obviously, and it held up a hand or arm like this and then scurried off the road, um, startled the living crap right out of me. I slammed on my brakes, stopped right there. And I was like, what did I just see? I, I knew nothing about Bigfoot reports or whatever, mm -hmm. you know, that those kinds of reports are in the Hudson Valley. I knew nothing about any of it. And in fact, didn't really care that much about cryptids. I mean, I knew about cryptids, but I didn't care that much about them. So the sighting really kind of shook me up because when I went back, I was a, cause it, what it had gone past into like a wooded area and there was a house just beyond there. And this was like nine 30 or 10 at night in an isolated place. 
why would somebody be walking around in a suit out there like that? It was clearly <laughs> not a bear because of the way it was walking. And um, it was covered with this. I mean, I saw it really clearly for like two seconds and then it was gone. Um, but I was able to go back because it had it had walked in front of a street sign when it had gone. And so I was able to go back and measure, you know, kind of get a sense of its height. It had to be at least eight and a half feet tall. So yeah, what that's a bit sound, tall. <laughs> well, what does it sound like to you? You know what I mean? And so anyway, right. that just kind of freaked me out. So I started doing some internet research and I came across Gail Beatty, who founded, who is the uh, founder of the, uh, um, what is it? The Bigfoot Researchers of the Hudson Valley. And I started talking to her and she kind of, through her and Linda Zimmerman and a few other people, I started sort of hooking up with all these paranormal people, you know, these, and I, and I started realizing that there were all of these different stories that the Hudson Valley has had for a long time. And some of these stories go back decades, you know, some of these places and um, I just, I thought it was fascinating. So I just began collecting stuff. And then about two years before I actually wrote the book in 2017, um, I was contacted by a, a television production crew out of the city, New York City. And they were going to try to create some kind of a, a program that they were going to pitch to like the travel channel, the discovery channel or something about mid Hudson Valley paranormal stuff. Well, they were only interested in UFOs. They were only interested in UFOs and abductions. And they wanted me to contact Linda Zimmerman and try to convince her to join. And they wanted us to sign all of our material mm -hmm. and research over to them, you know, like yeah. we would, like we would do that, you know what I mean? Right. And so, so I did contact Linda and she was like, Oh yeah, they've already contacted me. And she told them to, you know, go eat themselves somewhere. And, um, um, so they basically had lied to me. They had indicated to me they hadn't talked to her and they were trying to get me to convince her to do it. But anyway, so Linda and I had a conversation and she said, uh, well, you know, somebody just needs to like write a summary of like all the things that happen here. And I looked at my material and I, and I thought, you know, I could do one of those. And so that's what I did. Two years later, I had put some stuff together and this is what the book is. It's the only book like it actually uh, from the Hudson Valley specifically. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And uh, I mean, I, like I say in the book, I don't consider it to be like the end all or the be all of, of anything. I, I, I want it to be the beginning of a I mean, I would like it to be the beginning of a, a, a mechanism whereby people who have different types of experiences can begin to sort of connect. It hasn't happened with well, a pandemic hit like four months after the book came out. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. So, um one of the uh, one of the things that I love about it is, is like in many ways you don't treat all of these different types of phenomenon as separate things, but see them as 
you know, kind of, uh, you know, interrelational and, and, and kind of connected. How did you come about that approach? Did you did you come about that, you know, in the course of researching this, uh, like all of this and, and putting the book together? Or did you have that beforehand? I had a little bit of that beforehand. I mean, if you if you're familiar with the, the work of like John Keel, for example, mm-hmm. um, he had already sort of was heading in that direction. Um, when I did my dissertation, one of the, one of the things that informed how I, how I approached, um, you know, the whole topic, uh, I actually did my master's degree on UFO context stories too. So it's like, you know, mm. I, you know, I was guaranteeing that I would never get tenure, but, um, <laughs> just, you know, just guarantee, right? <laughs> you know, but but one one of the things that that um, really struck me, especially about contact stories, uh, even abduction stories too, uh, it was the what I considered to be the life transforming element of them, which which would be obvious in some ways, you know, whether the extraterrestrial hypothesis is correct or not, uh, but. What I noticed was, and I wasn't the only researcher who noticed that, that there, there were many similarities between, um, say, Marian apparitions. My, my um, master's um, director was uh, uh, Sandra Zimdar Schwartz, who at the time when I was writing it in the early 90s, was probably the world's foremost expert on Marian apparitions. And so um, I noticed that there were lots of elements that were similar. Jacques Vallée had noticed some of those things too. Um, you know, he talks, for example, about the the, the apparition at Fatima, and and the uh, as, the um, atmospheric phenomena with the sun that happened, and and how similar some of that is to mass UFO sightings. Um, and 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 it's and it's not an explanation uh, for right. the event. It's a way of looking at how these kinds of experiences impact people. And um, because what Jacques Vallée's uh, hypothesis is, of course, and John Keel's as well, is that there is some kind of consciousness or even a, you know power or authority that is behind at least some of these experiences. I mean, Vallée even talks about a control system, you know, that there's some there's something that is that is sort of molding and guiding us towards a certain types of evolutionary ideas. Now, I don't know if I believe that or not, but, but the point is, is that they're, but they're looking at the impact of these ideas on human society and on people. And to me, it's like, whether or not, whatever you believe the, about the ontological status of these experiences, you have to look at that. And, and the fact is, is that all that, all this weird stuff happens together. Um, I mean, in the Mothman prophecies, you know, um, John Keel talks about how, you know, you have you have UFO stuff, you have these cryptid things going on. And he even talks about how in the places where he um, was investigating around Point Pleasant, there was even an area where there was like a drug cartel operating and there had been a serial killer, you know, so it's like it's kind of like all the weird crap takes <laughs> up. <laughs> together which is absolutely to me it's absolutely the proof of that is the fact that when you when you look at like um you know programming on television mm-hmm. you get all that crap together too you know right. you get like true crime and paranormal ufos you know you get it all together because 
instinctively, all that weird stuff sort of hangs together. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean it's all coming from the same place because we don't even know what we're talking about. We just right. have labels for things, you know. Um, but it, here in the Hudson Valley, what I found specifically, and this is part of the reason why I think that the, the, the book might be interesting to some people, is that I noticed that um, there seemed to be, and, and, I, and this is this isn't as apparent in the audio version, but if you get the PDF that you can get with it, it's got the yep. appendix there. Um, yep. I provide a timeline, which no one's done before, as far as I know, in this way. Um, and it's a real basic timeline that, but what you can see is that at the same time that you're getting cryptid things happening in Kinderhook and uh, right after the White Hall incident or the Abear incident, as it's as it's called up there. I mean, mm-hmm. I think that I think that uh, investigators call it White Hall, but uh, up there they call it the Abear incident because it was on Abear Road that it occurred. Right. So, um, but right at the same time that's happening, you have the beginning of what would become a series of cyclical um, events or flaps, if you will, um, beginning in Pine Bush. And they're happening in different parts of the valley at the same time. Different creatures, different experiences are being had, but they're happening at the same time. And then as you sort of trace the timeline, you see everything sort of just moving through the valley like this. But the problem is, is that no one's ever bothered (laughs) to say, this is happening at the same time over here as this is happening over here. I don't know if they're connected, but isn't it weird that when you get this stuff happening here? You get this stuff happening here. When the stuff stops, it starts. Something else starts over here. It's very odd. You know, I, I've always found it strange. For example, that Whitley Stryber talks about his experience in communion. Yeah. And, and the time frame that he's talking about is during the height of of the Hudson Valley uh, tri- um, Triangle. You know, the Westchester Wing sightings. He never right. mentions that at all. But it's going on at the same time. Right, and it. And I've always wondered if, like, is that, like, willful ignorance on his part of just not knowing? Or is he purposefully excluding that, uh, you know, because, like, uh, it it took me a long time to realize, like, wait, where his, uh, you know, uh, events are taking place. Like, that's in the Hudson Valley. Like, why would that be connected? Yeah. 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 Well, and not only that, as I mentioned in the book, I'm drinking tea, excuse me. Uh, not only that, as I mentioned in the book, at the same time that he's approximately that he's having his experiences, there are other people in other parts of the valley that are having similar experiences, um, but they did not know of each other. You know, like mm-hmm. at the time, they did not know of each other. In the case of Stryber, I think it's just probably his own self-absorption. You know, I, I mean, right. I don't. Right. I mean, he's. I. I don't know that it's willful on his part. He's just been always very concerned about how things affect his navels. So, you know, um, right. right. <laughs> he probably just doesn't think about it. You know, I don't know that anybody's asked him. Right. Yeah. Cause like, you know, if you read uh, his books, they're definitely like, this is the journey I'm on. I'm documenting my journey. And yeah, these, there are other people that are affected along that journey, but like, without that bigger picture you definitely kind of miss it and like uh you know one of the things that i've noticed in in just the research that i've been doing is like um a lot of the focus of like say the mothman stuff 
is in, you know, uh, the West Virginia, Ohio Mm -hmm. area, but there was stuff going on all around the United States at that time on the Eastern side on, you know, and like, you know, Presque Isle Park, we have like a Bigfoot coming out of a UFO. We have, uh, there's a carjack, an alien carjacking in Idaho in 1967. Uh, this, this is one of, yeah, it's, it's, it's one of my favorite cases. These, uh, these two, uh, Navajo guys were out driving. They get stopped in the middle of the road by this UFO. And, and what's interesting about this UFO, and I keep seeing it over and over and over and over again, is that there's this archetype of this smallish kind of UFO. And it kind of has like a a ring of lights around it, transparent dome on top, and you see two figures on the inside. And I keep finding this image over and over again. Uh, people keep encountering this same kind of thing. But this UFO cuts off their car. The, uh, the one of these beings gets out, walks over to the vehicle, opens the door, pushes the two guys aside, gets in, and drives it into a field. Until it eventually, you know, just stops. One of them runs out, runs to a farmhouse. The other one is like just cowering in the corner of the of the cab. And uh, the alien just like looks over at him and starts talking to him in another language, has no idea, gets fed up, gets out of the vehicle and just goes back to the UFO and takes off. What a strange story. I mean, right. it's, like, it's like this is not a story that you put on prime time. You know? no. No. no, I mean, it's not there's nothing heroic about this story. <laughs> no but like uh and that's the thing is like uh, you know the more that you look at flaps and even if you look at like the 73 year of the humanoids flap you see that it's a lot of different things there was a lot of bigfoot like creatures that were sighted around that time especially in pennsylvania indiana and stuff so mm-hmm. like yeah it like that bigger picture is is, is very important and uh Again, that 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 gets back to your book and like that bigger picture that you provide, and especially with that timeline, because I did appreciate that timeline uh, and seeing like, oh, well, there is that going on at the same time that this is going on and and, and stuff. So, um, yeah, I, I definitely appreciated that, and um, I also appreciated the way you lay out your book because you. Um, like one of the first things that you talk about is like the geology of the Hudson Valley. And I just wondered if you talk a little bit about what makes the geology of the Hudson Valley so unique and how it may contribute to all of the activity that goes on in the valley. Well, um, the, the, the geology that we, that you see visually, you know, the, the valley itself, the, the Hudson River is a fairly recent feature, um, and it and uh, it, those features date back only to the last ice age, which geologically is not that long ago. <clears throat> but what is unique about, well, you, and I say this in the book, what is unique about New York as a state, as a region, is that New York is the only place in North America where every single age and epoch and era of the of, of the planet geologically is exposed somewhere. Uh, mm-hmm. in the state. And so that has made it sort of like a geologist's gold mine, so to speak, because, you know, you can find, well, even just where I live, um, and I talk about this, the, there's the there's the river valley, the Hudson River Valley itself. Um, and it goes through three different 
or, or next to or as close to three different uh, mountain features. Um, and of course, the Adirondacks are to the north, and that's a completely different geological feature. Uh, but these the, people often confuse these three geological fe- features. The, they are three different orogenies. And of course, orogeny yeah. is a geological term referring to mountain building, the process of mountain building. So you have uh, you have the Taconics that are to the east, and they are the oldest feature. Uh, they at one time were as high as the Himalayas, but they are now not you know they're they're gently rolling you barely see them in some in some places um and uh then then like directly to my west currently because i'm a little bit south of the catskills proper uh, where i live is uh is a series of ridges that are locally called the gunks Mm-hmm. And they, you know, people confuse them because they run right into the 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 Catskills, but they are actually a different feature, completely different geology. And on the top of them is, and that's what makes the this this thing on the top of them in New Jersey becomes the Palisades. Um, is is a is a is a metamorphic conglomerate that is extremely ancient and was lifted up, you know. Uh, and then the Catskills themselves are a combo of, of an uplift that happened um, some time ago. I give I don't even remember the dates. They're in the book. <laughs> People can read the book and look up the dates. Yeah. Um, and then when the last glacier, the Wisconsin, Wisconsin glacier withdrew, uh, and that, that glacier was like a mile deep, mile high, if you think about it. That's extraordinary. Yeah. How, that is it's extraordinary it was a like a mile high and and of course as it drew back and it drew back relatively quickly because this last ice age which people forget this last ice age ended rather abruptly as ice ages go um and and uh and it caused a lot of geological changes on the planet because of that so it came back so quickly that the land sort of went boing like you know kind of boinged up a little bit and you can see feature that you could see that very clearly, apparently on Manhattan Island originally. Uh, now it's all been carved off and everything. But apparently there were places where the rock had you could actually see the rock had sprung up. Um, but then the Catskills are a combo of uplift, and then um, and then as the glacier drew back and filled this lake that eventually overflowed its banks and. And then made the Hudson, you know, the flow made the Hudson. Uh, this glacier deposited all of this debris and garbage on top of, of the Catskills. So that's when you, you don't see this from a distance, but if you try to climb one of those mountains, it's like climbing a crumbling yeah. pile of gar- gravel because you are basically. Um, but, part, but, but part of what makes this region unique is because of that geology, uh, you have uh, lots of um, geomagnetic anomalies. These are ge- these are geological anomalies, and and what that means, as I explained in the book, is it just means that you have um, different layers instead of everything being sort of stratified and layered properly. You have different intrusions of different things um, from all the different geological things that have happened. One thing that I left out of the book because I didn't know it at the time. <laughs> and in and, and future editions, I'll have to put it in, is that apparently there are many geologists who believe there's a, in the Catskills, there's a peak that's called Panther Mountain. 
Mm-hmm. And um, and it's and it's an interesting mountain because if you look at it, the Esopus Creek, which is one of the tributaries to the to the Mid Hudson region, um, that creek does this really weird flow around that mountain, and it's and it's against gravity, and they couldn't figure out for a long time why that why it was flowing that way or appears to be against gravity. Well, now what it looks like, uh, there is some geologic evidence to suggest that way, way back in the Devonian, when this was all, when you didn't have mountains there, and this was all just a big, thick sedimentary sea in the Devonian, that it appears as if a, an, a meteorite hit right there and caused a, a, caused a mantle pressure. And then, of course, there was the uplift, and this mountain kind of grew on top of it, you know, from the uplift. Mm -hmm. But at the base of this mountain, there are still the remnants of that crater. And they have found, they have found, they have found, they have found like the, they have found electromagnetic um, evidence for it, you know, the same, the same kinds of uh, uh, types of glass, the tectites that you need, they have found. Um, they have found geologic signatures suggesting it's extremely ancient. Um, but anyways, there's there's so these all these geological intrusions, um, uh, you know, c- that create electromagnetic anomalies, um, magnetic variations at the local level, and then you have tons of water, water everywhere. This is like one of the wateriest places. <laughs> you know, a lot of underground water. There's obviously the river, but there's lakes. There's uh, there's underground. I mean, just in my yard, there are three springs and two wells. Holy crap! <laughs> and yeah, and it's you know, I mean, it it makes the house go like this all the time, <laughs> right? <laughs> but, but you know, um, the point is is that there's just lots of water, and and so people who look at you know when when ghost hunters in particular look at areas where um, paranormal manifestations take. Um, um, take place. They look at electromagnetic anomalies and they look at water right? because those seem to be the two things that are needed in any location in order to provide sort of the physical ballast for things to manifest. And then of course, as I say, there's, there's layers and layers and layers of history. Absolutely. Uh, it also kind of makes sense uh, why kind of Whitehall would have the stuff that it you know, because, you know, after the Bear Road incident, it kind of, you know, grew this reputation as being this Bigfoot hotspot in New York. And, you know, it kind of pretty much has been. There's, you know, a lot of sightings and stuff, but it's also kind of it's like right near Lake Champlain, I believe, mm-hmm. if I remember correctly. It's and, not too far. It's not yeah, too far. Yeah. So one chapter I, I, I absolutely love because I, I don't know a lot about the. Uh, the native lore of this area, but it, it was nice to, you know, uh, get a really good uh, chapter on it. Uh, and I was just wondering if you could uh, talk about your approach, because it's like when you read some books by some people and they start presenting Native American lore and such it it just seems like it's done in a disrespectful way and you approached it very respectfully and in 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 approaching you know elders and and stuff and and with their stories so it it, uh i just wanted to uh just wondering if you could go into um the lore and 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 how you you know uh gathered all that lore 
together? Well, I, I got it from several places. I mean, some of it I got from, um, you know, books that have been written about, about it. Um, and, uh, but, so, but some of it I got from um, indigenous people who live here. Um, one of, and I think that to me, one of the things that happened as I wrote the book and even before I wrote the book, uh, I, I, started, it was back in 2011, 2012, I started becoming involved with um, some indigenous attempts, indigenous uh, peoples, the, 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 um, the Haudenosaunee, and then also uh, various um, Algonquin peoples who have been gathering in the Hudson Valley uh, for a little while, and some of whom have lived here all their lives, <laughs> you know, there's this common perception that that there are no indigenous people in right. the Northeast, um, and that they've all died, and actually a lot of them never left. Uh, and but a lot of uh, Algonquin people and peoples in particular are coming back here because there is a thing that is called the Seven Fires Prophecy, uh, which uh, the the Mi'kmaq and the Ojibwe have been sort of collectively maintaining this tradition, and according to the to the um, seven uh, to to the seven fires prophecy, it's eight, the eighth fire is a prophecy is to be lit sometime in this decade, and they 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 measure this astrologically, um, and. Um, they're coming back here basically to see whether we're going to survive or not. I mean, that, that, that's sort of the upshot of it. But back in 2011, I became involved with um, various indigenous groups that were collectively gathering in order to try to stop fracking in New York mm-hmm. state, which they managed to do. Yes, at least for they now. did. And so, so yay. But um, anyway, um, I, I became acquainted with several elders who would tell me stories about Overlook Mountain, which is the mountain that's right behind Woodstock yep. and other other places. And and so I was collecting those stories sort of independently. You know, I've always been somewhat familiar with the fact that there are indigenous stories about, you know, spirit lights and different beings and things like that. Um. So, you know, I, I was interested in that anyway. Uh, but I think the thing that that sort of changed my view or my approach uh, it is, you know, kind of doing it like an anthropologist would do it, mm-hmm. which is you let you let you let people tell their stories. You let them you use the language they use. Uh, you, you be you, you really work to see the world in a different way. And, you know, I. I mean, when I read back through that chapter now, I could have done it even better, you know, I mean, because I know even more information now. But um, I I just basically went to to the people, you know, um, either in their written accounts or in their oral accounts. And I stuck with that uh, and and sort of let them tell the story. That's part of the reason, for example, um, when I in the second part of the book, when I taught when, um, um, you know, I have the individual stories that I, I, I got a, a good friend of mine who is an elder, a Mi'kmaq elder and a teacher, actually just simply write his own chapter, you know, so that he could talk about yeah. this stuff himself and use his language, use, you know, talk about these things the way, 
you know, an indigenous person talks about these things. Uh, and, and, and he talks about some of the same things that I mentioned in my chapter. But if you compare those two, he's talking about it very differently. You know, he, he just has, and, and it's fine because, you know, I didn't grow up in it. You know, I'm not living it every day. Uh, you know, I, I mean, my life has been impacted tremendously by these stories, but um, I can't pretend that, that I'm an indigenous person, you know. Um, so um, but but that's that was just the approach that I took. And, you know, when when we did the Audible book, um, Mike who, Hacker, who, who did did the uh, did the narration for me we spent quite a bit of time working on the pronunciation of these words to make yeah. sure that we got them at least somewhat right. I mean, you know, some of them, I, you know, he doesn't get quite right and I don't either, but it's like, it, we're, you know, we try really hard to get them as close to right as we can. Um, and because, you know, you, you, you just have to be introduced to this. It's, it's that, that's one of the first layers uh, of, of, uh, spiritual importance here and it was something that impacted the settlers i mean even though you know why you know, the dutch and the english don't like they didn't like to talk about it and they still don't you know the descendants of those folks still don't like to talk about how much they were impacted they were tremendously impacted mm-hmm. by by what they by the peoples and the petroforms and the stuff that they found here and uh you know and there's there's a lot of there's a lot of tension and hidden guilt and all kinds of things that still yeah. exist. You know, I mean, I encountered that at, at um, I went to the, the, one of the first Pine Bush UFO festivals I went to. I had this extended talk with um, Bobby Osterai, who, who I, I don't think I, I don't know if I can't remember if I quote him in the book or not, but he told me he, his family dates, but they, they, they came here before the revolution, before the war of independence so their their family dates to the early 18th century. They were one of the first um, German settlers, not Dutch or English, but German settlers in the region. And they had their family had a lot of unfortunate experiences with natives that were moving through the area. Um, there, there, there were there were Mohawk that were coming down from the north that were trying to influence the outcome of and trade routes and stuff you know um there were shawnee that were coming in to try to help their muncie brethren i mean it was just a mishmash of people moving around but his family um there were members of his family that were abducted by um by some indigenous people he didn't even know exactly who they were whether they were mohican or muncie or mohawk he didn't even know but they were they were they you know, they were taken away and they were going to take them, you know, north somewhere. And, you know, and just the way that he talked about that, you know, he and I had a very interesting discussion because, you know, in his family, in his family's history, this is a terrible thing that happened, you know, um, and his fa- these people got away because the the Indians got drunk, you know, as right. he said, the Indians got drunk and, and, and so his ancestors were able to escape. Uh, but I, you know, in querying him, I was like, well, you know, I, I was trying, I was trying to get him to see an, a different point of view, you know, about all that. And eventually we reached a sort of, we reached a sort of agreement to disagree, <laughs> 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 you know, which is fine because this is his family, this is his family's history. But the point is, is that, you know, a lot of that stuff is still there. 
a lot of that tension, a lot of that. Um, I mean, if you're going, if you're going through parts of, of just around me where I live, just where I'm sitting, you know, um, Sojourner Truth was, was born three miles from where I live. Okay. And we, and we know how famous Sojourner Truth mm-hmm. was. Her, 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 she was owned as a slave here where I sit. Right. And then just down the road this way, about four miles, was the last homestead of um, uh, Mama Roche, who was one of the, the last female sachems of the Esopus Muncie. And 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 was one of the the people that was able to keep the Dutch and the Esopus from going to war a third time. So, I mean, it's like there's this tremendous amount of history just like right here, you know, where I'm at. And everybody lives in it. Yeah. You know, native names of roads, you know, the road, the road that goes right. My main road here, Main Street, this this where I where this house is was a wintering area for the Esopus Muncie. And, and uh, it's not that there are lots of artifacts or anything, but the land itself hasn't changed that much. Right. So, so that's what I mean. It's like, you know, you know, you talk about how did I, how did I, I come to approach things this way? Well, if you're, if you have any sensitivity at all, mm-hmm. it's just here. Right. And, and, and like, I, I've read uh, and and if I've seen content from um, uh, native peoples on like, hey, don't say this word. Otherwise, hey, you could bring it to your doorstep or hey, we don't say this exactly. word or like uh, I, I think the most famous example and I won't say the name. I will say the uh, the the uh, toned down version, you know, the the flesh pedestrian ranch out in uh utah or right exactly like um so one of the things that um you know i I think like uh non-natives people native peoples do is in in many ways take the lore of native peoples and kind of use it as like uh, to hold up their their own experiences in a way and I'm just wondering, should we separate our experiences from that lore and what, you know, these native peoples experienced or should they be, you know, considered the same thing? Well, I, t- I try to address that issue in the book. You know, that's why I put things in different chapters. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why I take pains to say that, you know, I can't tell you whether or not, you know, what I saw on the road in Clinton Township was, you know, it looked like what we call Bigfoot. All mm-hmm. right. Um, but, you know, the Muncie had, the Muncie talked about a, 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 a character or a, a being that they referred to as Masinkwe, mm-hmm. um, who um, was a guardian of the forest. And, was that Masinkwe? I can't say that. I don't know. I mean, I don't know what Bigfoot is, okay? Right. Um, and the the Muncie had a particular relationship with Masinkwe, which we don't have with Bigfoot or Masinkwe. Um, and, you know, so 
that's part of the reason why I sort of relegated a lot of the indigenous stuff to one chapter. I was just trying to do it sort of chronologically, more or less. Um, and, you know, you, we can talk about similarities, you know, and I try to address that a little bit when I talk about the flying heads, you know, for the, for the Haudenosaunee and, um, but you notice I don't talk about certain things. Like I don't talk right. about when to go, you know, because they didn't have when to go down here. Now that right. doesn't mean that they, they didn't believe that, that there were, weren't things like that, but you know, they, you don't just talk about that stuff. And also, and I have to, I'm superstitious enough now that I do have to, mm-hmm. uh, the, the whole little people question. Right. Um, and, you know, I, I mentioned that in several places, uh, and that's part of the reason why you're not supposed to go out in the woods. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you know? um, but, and, and the other reason is because um, it's not your home. I mean, mm-hmm. humans live in settlements and and the, and the indigenous people lived in settlements. They lived in villages and they lived in places that were marked out for human habitation. And you did have to go into the woods for certain things, uh, but you you didn't go alone and you you went with certain intentions and certain offerings and and you understood that you were entering other people's houses when you did that. Um, and that's you know <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean that that's just that's just sort of the way I mean I've just I've just sort of accepted that you know and mm-hmm. I think that that's part of where the the kind of spookiness about the woods here comes from you know yeah. Uh, yeah I mean you know it's there is a kind of mood here from time to time um but yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of, I think that white people in particular, and they don't really, mean, I, and people don't really mean to, I mean, where you see this happening is, is in the, 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 um, the good old American white tendency to, you know, when you're going out Bigfoot hunting to take all your crap and you go out there and you're making lots of noise and you're setting yeah. your shit up and, you know, doing this and that, you know, you're looking for Bigfoot, right? You're going to prove that something's there. And from an indigenous perspective, that's just weird. Yeah. Yeah. Because like, you know, you go, you know, from that native perspective, they go out there with offerings. They don't go out there to make, you know, noises and stuff, because like, even if, um, you know, it's not Bigfoot that you're talking about and it is something different, that being serves a purpose in those woods for them. And, and, you know, you kind of talked a little bit about how this, you know, and, and like, that's the only way I know how to equate it is like this Bigfoot like being, I won't say, right. you know, Bigfoot either yeah. is like, Hey, this is the guy that manages the relationship that we have with all of these, you know, like animals in the woods. Not only that, kind of a reminder not to give up your culture at times too when they pop out of the woods and like just basically say hey don't forget about me you're gonna have to make an offering or whatever in 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 the future well right exactly well and also just sort of like um you know from the indigenous perspective these beings exist for their own purposes they don't exist Mm -hmm. for us you know the the woods you know we belong to the woods the woods don't belong to us and and and, you know, whatever these, I, I will say this, whatever these phenomena are, 
UFOs, ghosts, whatever all that stuff is. And I think this is partly why we're fascinated with it. They, it does signal to us the possibility that what we see is not all there is, mm-hmm. that there is a greater reality that we are part of. And, um, and it's, I think that that's, and, and it, and, and it signals the possibility that there there's power that we have not harnessed, right. you know, like, um, I tend to be very much like what the way Keel finally his conclusion that he finally came to when it came to you know like the conspiracies and and all that you know whether the you know whether the what the government knew about stuff I mean his conclusion was essentially that the government might know a few things about some things but the fact is is what the government doesn't want to let you know is that it doesn't know shit and right. not only that, it can't control it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, whatever whatever this stuff is, it's not under our control. It is it is doing its own thing. You know, I mean, in the way I look at it, is it might just be you know the consciousness of the planet itself operating in some fashion, right. which we do, we don't even understand. Um, so, I think it's kind of that level of respect and humility and. Um, wonder mm-hmm. and appreciation uh, that uh, and 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 respect and deference that that uh, those are things that are lacking in our culture. When you have Generally. television shows devoted to guys running into rooms and yelling at whatever may be there, uh, it doesn't put us in a great light. Uh, you know, as juxtaposed to that respectful kind of way of approaching things, because like this country seems like it's become a lot about that Christian worldview where you have to drive the evil out, whereas the native perspective seems to be, no, it exists. You, you, you know, maybe show it a wide berth, but it has its place here. Um, right, right. But so, yeah, I mean, and we don't know exactly why it's there. You know, we can right. make stories why it's there. We don't really know. Um, but if you try to drive it out, I mean, in the attempt to drive it out, you sort of either piss it off or you mm-hmm. become it in some way, you know, and, and that's not that's not very useful. I mean, uh, there, there are some of these urban explorers and ghost hunters that when they have some of their, I don't know if you watch this show, it's called uh, Paranormal Caught on Camera. I have a friend who's on it. <laughs> uh, do you? Yes. Well, one of the latest episodes, I don't know if this is real or not. I have no idea if these are real or staged um, things. But one, one, of the, uh, one of the things they had on, it was, I think it was last week's new episode. Um, was this guy doing kind of an, uh, you know, he was just going through a, an old house, essentially, mm-hmm. you know, and I can't, I, I was at the gym and I can't even remember if it was supposed to be haunted or not that he was going through it. But, but whatever jumped in the window at him, I have no idea if it was real or not, you know, <laughs> or like I said, but I mean, <laughs> Yeah, me and my trainer, we screamed like little girls, <laughs> scared the crap out of us. You know, if if it was hoaxed, it was really well done. Yeah. <laughs> it was just like, but but the point is, is he was there, yeah, you know, calling to it, yelling at it. It's like it's like you know, from you know, I could just hear my Arab my Arab friends, you know, from Morocco going, oh yeah, you, you say hi to the gin and they will show up. <laughs> 
(laughs) it's like i'm gonna follow your butt home you know it's like no 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 yeah no my uh my buddy uh Derek Hayes is on that show from Monsters Among Us and uh I had him on a couple of episodes ago but it's like uh a lot of those videos like I know a lot of those videos have been debunked long before they've ended up on that show but uh it's always kind of hilarious to you know see them be treated kind of seriously but it's just like no like (laughs) come on guys yeah, I mean, th- there's a part of me that just can't believe that that's real, you right. know, but I mean, but, but, but whatever it is was done well, because, because what the creature that jumps into the window, the way it jumps in, it doesn't jump in like an animal, it jumps in like a cat, you know, like mm-hmm. an animal, and and it's done so well, that it just, you know, you know, what you think is that a head's going to poke up, right, not the whole damn thing jump in the window. <laughs> right you know uh right um so uh i know the haudenosaunee and like the algonquin uh they have kind of legends of like um uh, you know, spirit ships so i was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that because you know it, i'm mainly a ufo podcast so gotta have a little okay. kind oh, of yeah, ufo okay. related stuff so uh, but no right so well anyway um well, what I was, what I've been told, okay, and and my sources are mostly um, Muncie, okay, mm-hmm. Muncie and Mohican and Micmac sources. Uh, although the Haudenosaunee roughly agree with this, what I've been told is that there are different types of spirit lights or, or spirit ships. I mean, that's another thing they're called, is spirit ships, and. Um, you can they'll you can see them in different types of formations so that one kind um and, and very similar to what people actually experience in pine bush honestly or have experienced in pine bush one type is just like a single light that will appear in a field and um if you walk towards it it'll disappear and then reappear further away um mm-hmm. and then there's a, then there's a phenomenon that is called dual lights in fact somebody was reporting those to me and somebody just, I have a Facebook page for, for um, paranormal uh, Hudson Valley paranormal central. And somebody just took a picture of these in one of their pastures just a few weeks, a few weeks ago and put it in this, put it in this uh, Facebook page, but uh, they're dual lights. Uh, they're, they're seen in pairs and they can be high in the air. Or they can be low on the ground. And if a lot of times when they're approaching people, people will think they're headlights. And then all of a sudden they'll realize they can't be headlights because they're coming out of the woods. There's a road there. Or all of a sudden they'll shoot up, you know, into the sky or something. Um, And uh, so those are common. And then then there are things that are called fireballs. And these are like little collections of lights usually three to four, maybe more, and they sort of jump around in tandem um, in the story, in the chapter about Bruce Hollenbeck and the Kinderhook creature. He talks mm-hmm. about seeing some things like this. Uh, there have been lights like that reported over Sturgeon Lake, which is about four miles directly west of me. Uh, and um, according to indigenous lore, what you pay attention to are the movements and the colors because the colors will tell you 
whether this is a these are mischievous spirit lights or not. So usually if they're yellow, white, or or orange, sometimes reddish orange, uh, then they're probably okay. Uh, what I'm in other words, non-malevolent. Mm-hmm. If they're green or blue, however, or a purplish color, then you have to, you're supposed to give them a wider berth because um, they're, they're, they're tricksy, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know? And of course, my response to, to, to the, to the Mohican elder who was telling me this is like, what happens if you get like, cause one of the accounts that I, that I publish is like, this guy saw a green light and then there were like several white lights around it. So like, if you get a mix, like, what is that? And she just looked at me and she goes, we don't talk about that. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't know what that meant, you know, whether she just didn't know and didn't want to tell me or whether that meant something particular, you know, but you get, but, but, you know, they, indigenous people don't like to talk about these things too much Mm-hmm. Because they're considered to be sort of outside the realm of of uh, outside the realm of us having the right to know anything about. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. You know, um, and but but there are regular accounts of these spirit lights or spirit ships, as they're sometimes called, um, coming off of Overlook Mountain, um, and I mean, people see them every year pretty regularly. Uh, there's a, there's a place called Lewis hollow up on overlook mountain where that stuff is reported a lot. This stuff is reported and see, I mean, I've even seen the dual lights. I, I saw the dual lights. Um, I don't put the, put this in the book, but I saw them. Um, I guess it was over the, it was over the Hudson. And it was maybe about six years ago. And at first I thought they were drones. And then I realized they were way too low and they would have been making noise and they were and they were um coordinating their movements in really interesting ways um it would have been very difficult for drones to do exactly what they were doing uh and they seemed to be responding to people um because i wasn't the only one observing them um they seemed to be responding to um how people were reacting to them in terms of like when they sped up or slowed down or whatever so what I, you know, I have no idea what they are. Yeah. Uh, there was a, um, there was a count that, that, uh, Bertolt Schwartz wrote about, published it in, um, flying saucer review of this young couple that had moved in, uh, to a house in Woodstock that it was owned by an artist. And it, I, I'm pretty sure they were right near Overlook mountain, but they had, they saw lights kind of like that moving around. They had, um, poltergeist-like phenomenon happening in their home. There was at one point um, uh, the uh, one of the the folks they got this like mental kind of communication, mm-hmm. and what she saw in her head was uh, what she described as um, the um, kind of like one of the Olmec heads uh, from the Olmec uh-huh. society, yeah, and, yeah. and like. They had all of these weird experiences, so that that uh, that jives with with stuff that I've read. And it's like, and he mentions briefly, he's like, eh, they're superstitious about that mountain. I'm like, okay, okay, I, I get it. Uh, but um, it, it kind of fits in uh, in 
and you know, you, again, you can't really say it's the same thing, but like in traditions, you know, elsewhere, you know, you've got like the the Brownville lights and and and, and, and stuff, and um, like in uh, because I I did uh, kind of an episode about um, UFO experiences in Africa, and, and one thing that you find uh, among uh, like the native tribes, people of Africa that uh, live there is that they equate their UFO, like what we would consider UFO experiences to be like uh, ancestral spirits, mm-hmm. like coming right. back. So like, uh, it, it's interesting that like, they kind of have that same perspective on, you know, like it, it, it's similar kind of perspective on that. So, yeah, I mean, I mean, that's kind of what I, I mean, the, what I was, the what, what was explained to me is that um, the Algonquin perspective, the, the, the Muncie sort of Micmac perspective is that as you go, when you're going up a mountain, as you go up a mountain, you're passing not only obviously through levels of altitude, but you're also passing through levels of spirit so that um, when you get to the top, you're at the place where um, ancestors leave and, and go to the stars. Mm-hmm. And there, there are ancestors that come from the stars and there are ancestors that come from the West or come from the ground. So you don't just have like, um, Barbara Alice Mann talks about this in one of her books about how um, ancestors are understood to come from many indigenous peoples in, in, in um, the Americas, especially in the Northeast. Ancestors are understood to come from several different places. So you have your physical kin and they come from the earth and there it's usually associated with the West. And, but there's also another element of ancestry that comes from the stars and as you're moving up the levels of the mountains, say the Catskills, um, you you eventually get to a place of Manitou or or divine power, and it's from that place then that you that you can that souls come back and forth, you know, um, from the stars. Excuse me, and that's part of the reason why there's a certain level on the mountain. It's between 1,300 and 1,500 feet on the mountain where almost all of the petroforms are found and the cairns. They're built at that level because it's understood to be at that level that certain types of manifestations occur. Mm -hmm. And and on Overlook Mountain, there there are several places, uh, Lewis Hollow being one of them that I mentioned in the book, uh, that... Uh, and in fact, one of the, those places was a place near where that person, that my physical trainer who had a, who had the experience of using the bathroom and seeing. Yes. <laughs> he, was, he was right near one of those spots because uh, there's a, there's like several parks and like camping areas that are near some of the spot because it's also a prime place in the Catskills. It's a prime place where you can see the scenery on, on many of the mountains, including Overlook Mountain. Um, but anyway, so that's where a lot of petroforms are. And you don't want to build anything higher than that because you're moving into the realm of spirit and you don't want to sort of carry that with you. So, I mean, these are the kinds of things that have been explained to me that might have something to do with um, what's being manifested, you know, whether they were responding to manifestations that were already occurring or whether or not 
um, and building things there because of that or whether or not those things came about because of what they were building. I don't know, you know, which comes first, but um, there's a reason for why that all happens, you know, mm-hmm. from, from a, from a, a Micmac or a, a, a Muncie point of view, you know, they can explain why the spirit ships come from the place where they come. Um, and then the various bodies of water that they may appear over. Those are usually understood to be um, places where um, settlements were, or, or ceremonial areas were. Uh, it also kind um, of, um, it, it, and, and I know you mentioned um, R.D. Sixkiller Clark in the book, but uh, it's also similar kind of to the like star people in a way, like, it, it, you know, slightly to, to that. Uh, so it's interesting to see that kind of connection. Uh, what, one facet, like absolutely fascinating uh, part of the book was reading about the Balmville tree. I never heard oh. of it before. Did you just oh, yeah? talk a little bit about the Balmville tree? Because it's like, uh, because like, you, you know, when you hear people read about people having dreams about a tree, like, I'm just like, what? <laughs> well, uh, yeah, well, you know, the Balmville tree um, you know, th- this is one of those things where I guess in a strict sense, this isn't paranormal, mm-hmm. but the reason why I included that story was to talk about how important these kinds of places and locations mm-hmm. are, even for white people, <laughs> you, know? Yeah. <laughs> you know, even for white people, the Bombville tree was, it no longer exists uh, now as a, as a living tree. Okay. It, it had, mm. it had to be um, removed because it was becoming a danger to the, to, to vehicular traffic in the area where it was. It was, it was the oldest um, Eastern cottonwood. I think in the world actually. Um, and, and certainly in the United States, uh, because normally they live about maybe 80, 90 years. And this had lived like over 300 years. Right. And, and mm-hmm. basically um, it, 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 it's mentioned in every single history of that's been written settlement history. That's been written uh, of that area. It's, it was uh, Baumville is right outside of Newburgh. It's a, it's a Hamlet outside of Newburgh. And um, it was, it, it, it just, because it was always there and it was what's called a witness tree, you know, it was a witness to the settlement. Uh, and, uh, it was, a um, it was a witness to uh, all the changes that occurred. Uh, and, uh, well, and I, I, I met it when it was still alive and it was still a tree. It's a great tree. I have little cutting, you know, little things that I got from it uh, before, it, before it had to pass, but, um, it, it just it just figured in the lives of the people who lived next to it so profoundly that um, I mean even George Washington talks about the tree you know is mentions the tree FDR would visit the tree I mean what <laughs> it just was a legendary tree and um, I, I think it's just because it harkened back to something. You know, it was a tree that was alive when before it started growing, before white people were there, were settled in that area. 
Um, and it happened to be in an area of crossroads, uh, which, which is some indication that it might have been planted intentionally, probably by natives who would do that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but we don't know for sure. There's no way to know. Um, but, uh, and why it lived as long as it did, who knows? You know, I mean, that's that's the other thing. It was sort of uh, unusual. But yeah, but people, you know, while they were, they were having like a memorial service to the tree, <laughs> I attended it, you know, and, and while we were there, um, you know, people were coming up and driving up and driving by and, and talking about their memories of the tree. And, and this one woman told me this story about how she'd had the, had a series of dreams um, of, of the Balmville tree appearing to her as an old grandfather who would counsel her when she was a child. I mean, that's not really paranormal, but it, it does it does speak to the power of 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 a piece of land and the and the power of a tree, the power of a being, you know, a living being uh, in in this tree. And you know, from a from a um, an, an indigenous point of view, they would refer to that that tree as some kind of manitou, you know, some kind of divine being because of its effect. And because of how long it lived, it was unusual, very unusual. And, uh, um, you know, when the tree, the tree itself was established as when it was still alive and and the little park around it is still there as, as the smallest heritage spot Mm -hmm. (laughs) established as a heritage spot, you know, I mean, it's, isn't that crazy? Yeah, absolutely. It absolutely is. Uh, like, to think of yeah it just blows my mind people saying that they had dreams about a tree and like uh yeah like uh there was a there was an episode i did recently uh in which somebody had said that they had a dream about grapes of all things and i'm like about okay. grapes <laughs> about grapes well, well, like, you know you can have dreams about all kinds of things you can you know? but it they were like connecting it to the, like a UFO experience. And I'm like, okay, okay, sure. One thing that I've, I've always been kind of fascinated by is, is Washington Irving himself. And he kind of seemed to uh, with his stories, like kind of capture the feel of the area. So I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, how he kind of shaped a little bit about a little bit, uh, you know, in, the way that that area is perceived because you know when you think of the legend of sleepy hollow and you think of uh rip van winkle like um it's very dark and very eerie uh but like they're they're kind of important to the area so like how did washington irving kind of shape the image of this area in his own way uh well at least the way the at least the way um I tell the story in the way that a lot of, you know, literary, um, you know, theorists tell the story is that he had the ability to sort of tap into uh, the, into the lore of an area. And he would mm-hmm. do this by actually talking to people who lived in an area, uh, whether it was um, the Dutch or the English or he would even talk to indigenous people that he ran into. And he kind of combined features of lots of different stories together. 
uh, and and also um, combined all of that with actual features of the landscape so that, you know, if you were, at least at the time when he was writing, if you were to actually go to Kinderhook, Kinderhook would like look like it did. Of course, Kinderhook hasn't, excuse me, hasn't changed that much actually. Um, I mean, they, you know, they have, I think they have a Dunkin' Donuts now, but it's like in terms of, in terms of like just sort of the way the main part of the town looks, you mm-hmm. know, it doesn't look like, it, it looks like it's stepped right out of the 19th century in a lot of ways. Um, but um, he, he had this ability to um, kind of pick up on atmosphere and, uh, and, and combine these different levels of narrative together. And as a result of that, um, historians like Matt Bua argue that you have elements, since he did use some indigenous elements, you have uh, stories, you do have elements of those stories uh, and that lore that make their way into his into his stories. You know, like um, I talk about the community at, in Communipaw, uh, which is, uh, you know, now absorbed into Jersey City um, and and how his account of Communipaw, even though he himself was clearly not aware of the indigenous influence of that community, he does describe things in it that it's clear from his own description that the that those things were there before the Dutch were there, but the Dutch don't know what these things are. And he talks about this kind of heavy, oppressive atmosphere of this place. And then when you find out the history of Communipaw and you find out that it is the site of the Pavonian Massacre, which was mm-hmm. the first large-scale massacre of indigenous people by the Dutch in the New World, then you realize, oh my God, you know, that whether those Dutch people he's talking to specifically knew that some of them probably did, mm-hmm. you know, because they probably had ancestors who participated in it. You know, he describes elements of all this stuff really in an interesting way. You know, he also, um, in talking about Communipaw, he, he, one of the stories that he tells is the story of an escaped slave in a boat that um, because of the nature of his um, servitude, because of the nature of, of how he had been enslaved, kind of went crazy and cursed the place, you know? So there are just, there's just, mm-hmm. but, but you get elements of, of oh, what, what was going on there um, that, that lent itself to this kind of haunted place that is apparently, according to people who live still live in the area of Communipaw, because like I said, it's kind of an area that's been absorbed, you know, um, that uh, apparently it still is kind of haunted. You know, people are still have experiences there um, that are kind of odd. And but that's the sort of thing that he did. He, he provided a kind of texturing and layering and um, and preserved various types, levels of folklore. Um, and at the same time, sort of, sort of made fun of things. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's a, there's a lot of sort of hidden, um, if you read his stuff carefully, there's a lot of hidden criticism of, of colonial um, attitudes towards the indigenous people. Uh, he, he, there's a lot of uh, sort of incipient criticism about the treatment of, of African-Americans who were still slaves at the time when he was writing. 
um, oftentimes in, in New York. Um, so, you know, he's, he's, he's clearly, even though he's kind of fond of the Dutch, he also thinks they're odd and queer because, you know, they're not like the English. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, and, and they're sort of his index of like antiquity and eccentricness. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, um, all of those things kind of lend themselves to this atmosphere of, uh, of, of just kind of, uh, it kind of creepy, but also kind of like, I mean, when you actually sit down and read the story of Ichabod Crane, for example, the legend of Slippy Hollow, it's kind of a weird story, mm-hmm. you know, from a modern perspective, it doesn't really have like a satisfactory ending. Like we like, no. you know, it, it's just sort of ends, you know, and, mm-hmm. and, uh, uh, and you think to yourself, what is this really about? And I think that it's about a lot of things. You know, I think it, it's, he was, he was sort of um, portraying the unsettled nature of, of some of these locations. Um, yeah. Absolutely. You know, um, the haunted nature, if you will, of some of these locations. Absolutely. You know, ha- and like, haunted in people's minds, if nothing else. Oh, absolutely. And like it, it also kind of lends credence to experiences that people have, because like if you go and you read, you know, accounts that people write in in like, you know, like uh, the, the old journals, Flying Saucer Review and stuff like that, they just abruptly end. There is no satisfying conclusion. It's just oh, this know. happened and boom, done. <laughs> like i think of that i think about that a lot uh in certain accounts that that i've read because like seriously it's like this is the most harrowing thing that's ever happened to me what happened to you after how do you how do you handle that yeah exactly well right exactly and you know that's that's sort of what i talk about in the book too it's like you get these weird things that happen it's like you know, I've met so many people here who have had odd things happen to them and they just keep, you know, it's just part of living here. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's just accepted as, as kind of part of the landscape. Well, and I think like, uh, you know, because I'm someone who has had a lot of personal experiences and they are, they're varied. They're not the same thing every time. And like some of them go beyond, uh, like what you would because like for the, for me in the Adirondacks what you get a lot of the time is uh you know because the the Hudson Valley is very separate you know in, mm-hmm. at least in my mind from the Adirondacks yeah, well, it, it, it's geologically separate yeah. absolutely although the headwaters yeah. of the of the Hudson are in the Adirondacks right. right right yeah that you know in the in the southern Adirondacks and like it, it, Adirondack is a weird word to begin with because, like, it's a Mohawk word that the Mohawk would use to talk about people uh, who had aligned themselves with colonists. And, like, it, it, right. it's a word that means eater of trees. So, <laughs> right, it, right. It's a, it's a very weird, it's kind of like, uh, I think, like, um, that one book, you know, the stuff they never taught you in history class or whatever like, that that came out in the 90s. And like he's, the author's talking about like when uh, people landed in the Yucatan 
and you know they're they're trying to talk to the natives and they keep saying like you know like i mean yucatan is you know bastardized from what they were saying but like it literally means i don't understand <laughs> so the yucatan means uh, i don't understand <laughs> there, there, hold on for a second there's a, i yeah. don't know if you've seen this book hold on this is one of my books here this is called um rural indigenousness a history of Iroquoian and Algonquin peoples of the Adirondacks. No, I've never, never come across it. But yeah, you, yeah, you, you might want to check this out because it's, I will. It, it's, uh, it's, uh, it talks about the, you know, the Abenaki. It talks about, um, it, it's, it's a, it's a book of of anthropology, but it talks about how the the different people who peoples who lived in the Adirondacks how they sort of figured out how to deal. <laughs> in different ways, with, yeah. you know, with the eaters of trees, and uh, right, you know how how they adjusted in some ways, and in some ways they didn't. You know, like it, like it talks about Old Forge, you know, and the creation mm-hmm. of that spot, and um, so anyway, it's 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 actually for a scholarly book, it's very readable. Um, it was. Uh, it was a. Uh, it was published by Syracuse University Press. Oh, nice. Yeah. All right. Yeah. All right. And, uh, but but yeah, it's called Rural Indigenousness. Uh, you de- you definitely turned me on to some uh, some other books. I definitely got my hands on a copy of uh, Haunted Iroquois because like that that just seemed like you know uh, had to dive in. But one book I I did get my hands on is uh, Ghosts in in Residence. Oh, isn't that a great book? Isn't that yes. fabulous? Book? I it, mean, it's, it's like if, if you're going to read Rip, if you're going to read Washington Irving, you read Washington Irving, and then you read that one, Ghosts yes. and Residents. Yes, it's just uh, it, that 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 was one of the inspirations for the book too. I just had to start with that, and I've actually gone it, since I wrote the book. I've actually gone up to Old Chatham, and I have located that house, the Chase House, it's still there. <laughs> Uh, still owned by family members, um, and uh, um, you can find it on Google Maps if you want to. And uh, it's you know that whole area around Old Chatham hasn't changed a lot either. Um, and that's you know that's one of the places where um, where Bruce Hollenbeck talks about. That's not too far from Kinderhook, so that's like one of the places where. Uh, that Kinderhook creature showed up was in Ghent and Old Chatham and around in there. So, so like uh, one another thing, haunted place. Yeah, yeah, exactly, absolutely. Like um, with with Kinderhook, like because I know I know of the like Kinderhook blob cases. Oh, aren't um, those great? Yeah, those are fantastic. <laughs> like seeing that I little the blob. I love yeah, the blob. Seeing that little illustration of that little blob like just kind of peeking out behind a <laughs> behind a tree is just absolutely I fantastic. Um, I love it. So like um with, with Kinderhook is like are those blob sightings different from like uh, the monster sightings? Cause it seemed like they were kind of different things or are they the same kind of thing? Well, right? uh, you know, they, they, well, the way Bruce described them, uh, you know, in his, in his family, he saw them as being, um, they, they, they happened further back in time for his family. Uh, now there have continued to be some blob sightings. He himself, but his family, 
uh, he reported the blobs <laughs> when he was a kid, you know, mm-hmm. um, uh, and of course, in the in the book, uh, his favorite account is uh, is is the blob that sort of came down the hill at, you know, two of his cousins and one of the cousins saw like a bell-shaped thing and the other cousins saw yeah. which I think is great. You know, they both saw something, but they saw really different things. Um, but he, I, I think he, when he told me his stories, uh, he just told them all as a piece. You know, these are the things that happened to me and my family in the place where we lived. And we saw spirit lights and we had poltergeist activity pretty pronounced poltergeist activity we had um uh apparently a little person situation and we had some kind of a bigfoot maybe whatever situation you know like all of all of this stuff happened around their homestead and 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 for him for me including the blob stuff Mm -hmm. and for me that's kind of like one of those indicators that you were talking about way back at the beginning of all of this stuff happening together you know that's part of the another reason why i mentioned my physical trainer several times the guy who saw bigfoot while he was peeing in the woods because he has also had repeated other experiences ufo experiences um, um, the gym that, that I go to is haunted. Uh, they have poltergeist experiences there and, and other things. I mean, just as recently as two weeks ago, they've had stuff happening there. So it's like, it's, you know, that, that's why when I talk about the Hudson Valley, I can't just talk about one thing. I have to, mm-hmm. you know, all of this stuff is happening. And frequently, this stuff is happening to the same people or in the same places over and over again. I, I have definitely been in that, uh, that, that area uh, uh, because like I live in um, Tupper Lake, for instance. Um, You live right where Eugenia Macer's story had her first weird experience. (laughs) Yes. Um, I have had, um, let's see. I, I, you know, I've, I've had, you know, ghost-like experiences i've had things follow me i've had ufo sightings here like close a close encounter while i was at work one day so close like under a thousand feet that this thing was flying but like it um I, i was at work i went out on a break with a with a buddy of mine and we were just standing at the edge of the property because i work at a nursing home and uh just sitting there standing there shooting the breeze and we just look up and there's this uh, giant egg in the sky like uh probably about the size of a small car and it's just moseying very slowly to where we were and then when it got to where we were it stopped turned 90 degrees and just took off slowly away and it's like And um, I think the the most startling thing I've ever seen uh, in a and again, like a lot of the stuff seems to be related to me going to work or being at work. Uh, I, you know, take my usual route to work. And one day I get to this one person's lawn and this house. Up until maybe. 
three or four years ago, nobody lived in it. It was just like somebody would come and they would like winterize it every year and, and, and stuff, but nobody lived in it year round. And at the base of this person's lawn, and there was kind of a steep incline uh, before you got to the house, there was this, the best way to describe it was like a lizard man just standing there and yeah. had its back to me, turns around, looks at me, it just takes off and like, well, what is that? <laughs> because like, I, you know, even in, because your mind goes to, well, why would a lizard be in, why would a lizard man be in the Adirondacks? One, it's, it's not a very hospitable place for a lot of lizards, but uh, you know, that's not to say that they couldn't survive, but it's like, uh, how do you quantify that? <laughs> it's like, I, I don't even know. <laughs> Right, right, exactly. Well, it's kind of like when I saw whatever I saw on the road. I mean, mm -hmm. it's like, you know, I mean, to this day, I just, there's a part of me that's like, I've, you know, I know what we call that, mm -hmm. but I don't know what that is. Yeah. You know, I, I, I don't know what I saw, except I know what we call it and what it looked like. And, and that's it, you know, mm -hmm. that, that's literally it. Um, and I mean, honestly, I have had some odd experiences here, uh, and, uh, you know, I talk about a couple of them in the book. I, I don't go into all the experiences that I've had, but, um, probably it's, it's because of some of the experiences that I've had that I sort of, uh, that sort of what also drove me into kind of making sure that I wasn't being too narrow about all of the different kinds of things that we can, you know, that can be kind of shoved into this, you know, I, I'm kind of glad that we talk about para weird rather than paranormal now, mm -hmm. because, well, you know, and especially if you know what the word weird means, you know, right. weird, of course, is an old Anglo-Saxon word. And it, it, it refers to that, um, that, that secret those secret patterns that underlie the the physical things that we see and and that are governed and controlled by forces that we have we do not know about and and have no control over uh and and that's where the word weird comes from you know that's that's sort of the fabric of the universe and so calling it para weird well, para, it's sort of saying the same thing. It's like right. weird, 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 <laughs> you know, but, but I, I like that better than paranormal because normal implies that there is something that is normal, <laughs> you know, and I, yeah. I've come to the conclusion that what we call normalcy is just a pause in the weird. <laughs> you know? Absolutely. You know, it's just a pause in the, ah, you know. Absolutely. No, I totally, I totally agree with that. Um, uh, Professor Wham, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and uh, sure. thank you for writing Mysterious Beauty. It's just absolutely fantastic. I can't recommend it enough to uh, uh, the listeners here. And now it's out on audiobook. Uh, you can go listen to it on Audible. Uh, Michael Hacker has kind of become the the guy that narrates yeah. paranormal nonfiction. And, and I've, right, I've heard exactly. him so many times. So uh, right, it's a familiar right. voice. Um, he, did, he did a great job and he's great to work with. I really like it. Absolutely. Um, 
So uh, how can people uh, keep up with your work and where can they find your book? Okay, well, the book is available on Amazon or iTunes um, or Apple Tunes or whatever it's called. Right. Whatever, <laughs> you know, whatever that is. Um, so wherever you get Audible books, that's where the Audible version is. If you want a print or ebook copy of it, um, it's on Amazon. It's also on Actually, the ebook and the print book, you can get any number of places, pretty much anywhere where you can get ebooks or print books, Barnes and Noble, um, Kobo, wherever you want, you know, you can, you can get it. That's available internationally, worldwide. Um, And uh, to reach me, the best way is through, well, this email that you have. Um, Mm -hmm. I I do have a website, professorwham.com. It's in the process of, of changing providers so at you know it, it's it's up but at some point in the next couple months it's there's going to go be a transition period uh, but um uh i do have a bunch of my interviews up there there's a few blog um, things up there and uh um you can reach me at professor it's professor wham numeral uno numeral one at gmail.com um so that's the best place to reach me. Uh, if, if, if unless you're on Facebook and you know Stephanie Quick, in which mm-hmm. case she, yes, she she, she will she will uh, connect us because that's what she does. Yes, uh, uh, shout out to Stephanie Quick. She was on episode ninety nine. We talked about the Trancus incident, and uh, uh, we had actually I I briefly mentioned online on Twitter that. I'm one of those people that has issues with the work that David Politis does and like, oh, you should check out this video by Professor Wham. And I was like, oh, I will. Thank you. <laughs> and oh, and yeah. from oh, there, yeah. I have issues. So yeah, I go off about it. <laughs> yeah, you definitely from a completely do. different perspective than Stephanie, but you know, as yes. an anthropologist, I just go off. <laughs> it's like, yes. So, uh, yes, absolutely. Shout out to Stephanie Quick uh, for making this happen right here and for for putting me onto your book. Um, uh, And that's going to do it for this episode, folks. Um, Don't forget to look up because you never know what you'll find in our strange skies or over the skies of the Hudson Valley. In gray, we trust. Yeah.